This is LifeSpeak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge. Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with Shannon Lee Simmons. Shannon is a certified financial planner, chartered investment manager, financial literacy advocate, and the founder of the New School of Finance in Toronto, Canada. Shannon, welcome to the LifeSpeak podcast. Thanks for having me. In your book, Worry-Free Money, you say modern life sets us up a horrific financial trap. Afraid when we spend money and guilty when we don't. Now, as a financial planner, you have a client base that ranges from, you know, students and recent grads to, to high earners. And yet so many of us express feelings of guilt, inadequacy, shame, and worry about money. And you say in the book that nearly everyone that you speak to feels like they're broke. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Oh my gosh, let me count, count the ways. <laughs> so I think, but in all honesty, I think the main thing is that fundamentally, most people don't know truly what they can and can't afford. Because if you actually think about what can I afford, what does that actually mean? It's very subjective. So it's loaded. Uh, Does it mean that I can pay off my mortgage by the time I retire? Does it mean I can afford to buy a house one day? Does it mean that I can go to school without student debt? It's a whole lot of questions into what can I and can't I afford? It really has to do with what do you want to accomplish? And then, you know, working out whether or not there's enough income coming in and how you move around your expenses to see how long it's going to take you to do that. And so it's also a length of time thing. So can I do that in the next three years or five years? And so if you've never actually sat down and mapped out, what am I trying to accomplish here for real and worked backwards, then there's no way of knowing truly what it means. So what you're actually saying is like, can I live a nice life that makes me feel proud? Am I able to live a life that feels good for me and like aligns with what makes me happy? That's what the actual question is. It's done through money. And so I think that when we don't know what we can and can't afford, then every financial decision that we do make feels fraught with anxiety. Because if you order a pizza and it's $40 and you're not sure if that pizza is going to throw you off course for retirement planning and you're not going to be able to pay off your student debt ever or anything like that, then that $40 pizza feels terrifying. And there's guilt associated with it because, you know, you hear the, you know, lower the takeout, blah, 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 all those financial tips. So then you spend the money, you feel super guilty about it, lots of anxiety, and then you swear it off in irresponsible spending again. And then one day you order a pizza again, and then the whole cycle starts again. So I think that truly it's across the board for people who are making, you know, enough to just like get by. And then those who are very high earners, if there's cloudiness or murkiness around what you're trying to accomplish and how much, how, how you're going to do that, like if you don't have the actual plan to do that, um, or if there's uncertainty about the future, then that means that everything feels scary. And then when everything that you do feels scary, you feel broke because there's never enough money. Because if you just had more money, you wouldn't have to worry. And that's where the feeling of broke comes from. It doesn't actually mean that you are broke. It just means that you feel broke because you think that having more money would solve your problem. We're going to get into a little bit more of the nuts and bolts about, you know, what people can maybe do to improve their relationship with money. But I I want to start with what you you actually have a whole chapter on social media. And I'm referring to worry your book, Worry-Free Money, more specifically with this. But you say social media is the worst thing to happen to our bank accounts since overdraft protection. But behind every great photo is a bill. This was like a light bulb moment for me because it never really had occurred to me before how much social media has an impact on my spending habits. What yeah. can people do to, to, to take away its power? 
insidious, really. It infiltrates in so many ways. I think that first, first and foremost, before we get into the what, did, what do we do about it, I think the why does it do that is, is important to, to answer first, because then how you solve the problem is, is more direct. So number one, I think that there's the most obvious, which is like an Instagram ad. And the, like, the joke, and I'm sure anyone listening to this, if you're on Instagram, you might laugh along with me here. It's like, the joke is that the Instagram ads have figured me out. Like it knows what I want to see and it knows when you want to see them. And so number one, that's the number one way that social media impacts your spending is like, there's literally perfectly curated marketing specifically for you because they know so much data about you in a way that marketers could only have dreamt of, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And it's right in your handheld device. It feels intimate and it feels curated for you specifically. So, and now with phones that are so easy to buy at the press of a button, I bought something the other day uh, while I had my toddler like having a meltdown while I was on the phone because I didn't even need to do anything. I just had to put in my passcode for my phone and I, it just, it was done. So there's no thinking about it. So like there's that way. And then I think that the more insidious way that's maybe less obvious to people is that it kind of heightens the cost of your daily life. So we all know keeping up with the Joneses. And I think people think of that statement as like something to be ashamed of. Like, oh, I don't want to, I don't keep up with the Joneses. I'm not that petty or shallow, but like, come on. We literally, it is human nature to want to fit in with your people. So depending on who your people are, you're going to kind of acclimatize yourself to fit in with them. And that's, that's nothing shameful about that. That's a completely normal, like evolution has made us this way so that we, we feel like we have community. So if your community is thrifty and, and thrift wise, and uh, you know, then you being a thrifty person is going to fit right in with that. But if your community, their kids all have brand new, whatever's then your, or their birthday parties are very elaborate or whatever. Then if you're not like that, your, your brain is going to be like, you don't fit in here. Like you're different. And, And that's something that we have to like logic our way through. That's not our gut reaction. Our gut reaction is like fit in. And which again, super normal. And biologically we are, we are like, trained to be that way. And so it takes a lot of willpower not to do that. And so I think with social media, what's happened is now, instead of having a community of like, you know, a couple hundred people that you see in your neighborhood, like think about 30 years ago, you would have seen your neighborhood and your people at work. And so you would have maybe like seen how you, 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 where you fit in, in that kind of like in that crew. Well, now you can follow hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people. And so you're seeing how thousands of people live their life. And of, of course we all know it's a highlight reel, So you see those images enough times and you start to think, well, everybody else is doing a home reno. Why am I not? When maybe the people in your direct community, none of them are, but you have this like heightened sense of what other people are doing, which eventually makes us feel like if we can't do those things, then we're inadequate. And somehow we don't have enough money and that we need to do those things. And with easy access to debt and credit and all those things, it's way easier to do that stuff. Now, I I think the vacation thing is like the greatest analogy. Like, okay, I remember my parents making jokes about, you know, one of their pals went on vacation to Europe. And then they were like the old joke about the slideshow, right? You'd go over to your neighbor's house and they'd have this like two hour slideshow photos of their vacation. And you maybe that night you'd be like, oh man, we should go on a vacation. Like we never do that. And then maybe that thought would like flip away or like maybe you'd book something later or whatever. You probably wouldn't think about it all the time. But now the, you know, hundreds of people that you follow on social media, maybe they're all going for a vacation on March break and you're constantly reminded of it. And now you have access to these beautiful photos of these other people doing things that you wish that you could do 
all the time because you, it wasn't just one night. It's every single day for hundreds of people. And then now you're like, well, screw that. I'm going to book a vacation. I deserve that. I'm going, whether you've got the money or not. So that's how it really is impacting our, our wallets. Does that make sense? Totally. And behind every great photo, as you say, is a bill. Well, can you imagine what people are spending or if they can even be, they could even afford to be doing this. Right. Well, can you imagine if right beside the picture of, you know, the knees photo where it's like the beach and there's like the legs. Imagine that there was also like a visa credit card bill. It's like four grand. (laughs) Wouldn't that be, I mean, I actually, I I started a project like that called the real selfies for that exact joke. Uh, I, with my job, I get to peek behind the curtain of like people's home renovations and vacations and wardrobes and seemingly awesome lives. And yeah, there is, there is a bill with everything. And so I think I have this unique perspective that way that it doesn't, it rattles me, but I can get myself to a logical place really quick because I also have that anecdotal evidence that I don't know that average people are thinking about, you know, how do they do that? That's really where that question comes from. It's like, how are they doing that? That's the question that I know a lot of people have at the kitchen table. So you have an example in the book, which I loved where you, somebody mentioned, I don't understand this other person seems to be able to afford this really expensive house. And she goes on annual vacations and I don't know how she affords it. And you said, well, why didn't you just ask them? And it, I mean, yes. it never, and then he actually finds out that you know, she, the house is, she's, she's sort of drowning in debt and, you know, it's true. We don't, we don't ask. Yeah, we don't ask. So she, so I think in that story too, she had a big family handout uh, in the first place to buy the house. And now she also has lots of consumer debt. So those two things were that, you know, the person is like, I make the same as her. We're in the same position, but I can't do those things. Well, most people aren't talking about the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of how they're getting their, their financial stuff done. And so we talk about it in a light way, like, you know, we'll roll our eyes and be like, well, that costs more than I wanted it to, or like, that wasn't cheap, but we don't specify like that actually cost me $8,500. I'll be paying it off for the next year and a half. (laughs) Like, can you imagine if we were that blunt about it? It'd be so relieving for everybody else. (laughs) But I, uh, just to circle back on what to do about social media, I went on a bit of a diatribe there, but I think the first thing to do is to take your credit card out of any sort of stored payment plan, like payment things that make it more convenient for you to do, uh, to like basically tap and pay. If you even have that one moment of like sober thought of like, do I actually want this? Or am I just like in a moment and I need this right now. And then put yourself on like a 24 hour embargo. And if you still are thinking about whatever item is it is that you wanted to purchase, um, you know, go for it, but don't make it so easy that you can do it so mindlessly that I had one client say that they don't even, sometimes, you know, an Amazon box, box will show up and they don't even know what's in it. That's how mindless the spending has become because it's so easy to do it without even thinking. So taking your saved information out of all websites on your phone, all that, that's number one. Number two, I actually put up some of my clients and I've done this myself now too. I've taken my, my own advice and giving your, t- taking yourself completely off social media. So the two ways of doing that, literally like taking the apps off your phone for a specific period of time. Um, and I, I usually suggest that if you're having one of those emotional, if you're feeling inadequate and you're feeling like you're scrolling and that your life sucks, take yourself off at least for a week. And like, uh, this sounds a bit silly, but like every night, you know, write down one sentence, like literally write down in your, in your phone or write it down on a piece of paper, whatever, how you felt, because I did that myself. And I was really ticked off the first few days. I felt like it was, you know, so stupid and so frustrated. And that was because I'm like borderline addicted to knowing what everyone else is up to. 
And so getting over that, like first three or four days of, of feeling like, what if I miss something? What if I, but I'm like, what am I missing? Like, what am I missing? You know what I mean? And so eventually you start to get over it and you can laugh at it a little bit more. And now what I do is I actually put, I have one of those apps on my phone that blocks certain social media on my phone. So it only allows me like 45 minutes a day so that I can manage the mindless scrolling and that kind of thing. So putting yourself on some sort of social media detox can be really helpful. It's not going to stop you from spending money in the same way that taking your credit card and stuff out of the phone out of your saved apps is, but it might make you really acutely aware of how inadequate or how frustrated or how much more spending you're doing because of how many people you're seeing. And and then maybe you can choose your own adventure on how you want to engage with social media when you come back to it. And how much control it has over us. Absolutely. I know a lot of, I know one client, I put her on a social media detox and she was so happy. She did it for longer than I even suggested. I suggested two weeks and she did it for a full month. And then when she, she never went back on in the same way. She, she went back on Instagram and she uh, blew up her other account she started a new one and she said that she wouldn't have, she wouldn't follow more than I think it was 50 people. She made a list on paper of like, whose life do I actually care about? Like, you know, my nieces, my sister, like who are the people that I'm like, I really want to know the like intricacies of your day, like the mundane stuff that makes you you. And then she just followed those people and only those people were allowed to follow her and that's it. So then then when she would use the you know she called it an excuse of like well I like to stay in touch with people well like she that's exactly what she's doing but it's not like hundreds of people and like hundreds of followers where you're starting to think oh if I don't post this photo of my kid's birthday party it's like if I don't if it didn't get posted on social media did it really happen like it's that kind of it's uh, posting on social media has become part of the celebration for things now, I think in a weird way that it just wasn't like 20 years ago. That's such a good idea. Just, just follow the people you actually know and like. <laughs> yeah. Like make a list, like a wedding list. Like if, if you were getting married, who would be at your wedding? Like make a list of the people that you actually want to know what they ate for dinner and that you actually want to know if they went on vacation and the mundane details of their life. And, um, and follow them. Because also, if you know somebody really well, then you probably have a full picture of their life. So even if you see some fabulous thing, you know more about that person. So you can fill in the blanks versus your imagination, making up that they're just better at money than you, that they're better at saving than you, and that somehow you suck with money. Because that's not the case. Your approach to finance is a lot more empathetic than most people would expect from a financial planner. You know, you started your career on Bay Street, which is the Canadian equivalent of Wall Street. And after a few years, you left to start the new school of finance. When did you realize that you wanted to have a different relationship with your clients? Ah, oh, that's a great question. Um, I, I love financial planning because I'm I'm good at math, but I'm also a people person from day one. I always have been um, like, I'm an empathy fiend. And so I, I like have to connect with people. It's like part of it. And so financial planning was such a perfect way to match my like, you know, mathematical strategic skills. Also, I'm a Capricorn. So like super love to make plans with something that actually allowed me to speak with people. So when I started on Bay Street, I was working with like super high net worth clients but it was still scratching the itch of like, I mean, it doesn't matter that they're super wealthy. They're still people that I really wanted to bond with. So even helping them, like that was really good. And I actually, I had an okay time there. What happened was we got um, bought out by the bank. 
we, uh, which is fine. And then it just, but that was like a square peg round hole situation. I also realized at the same time, it was when the 2008 stock market crash and everything happened there in the subprime crisis. And I realized at that time, a lot of my peers, so I was in my mid twenties were like, couldn't get a job or like gig economy, like coming into this world, like graduating into this, like, you know, gong show economy. And the conversations were like, you're so lucky that you know this stuff. I feel so lost. And it was then that I realized like, wait a second, like, where can my, where can I refer my friends to? Because they can't come to see me because you need to have a million to $2 million liquid to get in the door. So where can they go? And I couldn't find anywhere to send them. That's no joke. In Canada, across the whole nation, I was like, what? That was affordable because you have somebody who's 25 years old, 26 years old, trying to make a financial plan. This was, you know, back when I started and it was like $3,500 starting for a fee only financial planner, which is what I am. And I was like, that has to, that, that can't be right. And that was the moment where I was like, someone has to do something about this. Like, I want to be the person that all of these people could be referred to basically. And I can help them because otherwise they're going to need to go somewhere where they're going to be sold something and it's not unbiased, or they're going to have to spend so much money and that's not the average person's life. And so that, that was a big turning point for me. What do you tell your clients about how they can improve their relationship with money and, and, and sleep a little better? I mean, I, I've heard you even say that you hate to budget. So yeah. <laughs> but I, what can we do to make, to make things better for ourselves? Yeah, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a bunch of things, but the number one thing that you can do is have a plan. And I don't mean necessarily like a 40-page document with pie graphs. I mean, sit down. I mean, this feels a bit biased because I am a financial planner. So obviously I'm going to tell you to get a plan together, but what I, I don't care if you see a financial planner, what I really want you to do is in a meaningful way, sit down and map out like, what are you trying to accomplish? What are those dreams or goals that are, uh, which ones are dreams and which ones are like nice to haves and which ones are non-negotiable goals? Because the non-negotiable goals are the ones that if you don't achieve them, you are going to feel like a failure. Give me an example. So like, sure. I'd love a yacht one day. Cool. I'll never probably get one. I'm not going to feel like a life failure if I don't have that because it's like one of those like fun dream things, right? Like, oh, I'd love to have a cottage or like, oh, whatever. But there are other goals of mine that are no joke. And, and if I don't map out a way to get there and I just end up having life pass me by and I haven't, done, I haven't achieved whatever it is, then I'm going to feel like I didn't do a good job. So what are those goals? Those are the ones I'm interested in as a financial planner. Like the, what are the basic things that you need to achieve in your life to make you feel okay? And sometimes we're also just chasing a feeling like we just don't want to feel broke. It's not about owning a house. It's because you can feel totally wealthy in rent. It's not, and sometimes the brokest people I know are homeowners, right? So sometimes you're just chasing a feeling about not like not feeling broke. Um, so mapping it out can really help because when you when you map it out, sometimes it's scarier to think of what you can't accomplish versus mapping out what you can accomplish. And people are often surprised at what they can actually do when they kind of like set their mind to it. So doing that, and that's going to give you that magical number of what you can and can't afford, which we talked about right at the beginning of the interview, which is like, you know. If you know every paycheck, I'm saying this to the employees out there, if you're self-employed, there's different ways around that. But just for philosophically speaking, if you know every paycheck, what's the amount of money that you're allowed to blow to zero to live your life 
with no guilt and you don't have to worry about the long-term game. You're still going to save enough to pay down debt or retire one day or buy a house or whatever it is that you want to do. Then absolving yourself of that guilt allows you to spend money freely and can give you some of that control because so much of feeling broke is about feeling out of control. So it really can help to map out what you need to be putting aside to achieve those non-negotiables and then absolve yourself of guilt. So like if you put enough money away to do those things, then like who cares what you spend money on? Like seriously, like literally who cares? And then it doesn't matter if it's like pants or, you know, coffee or avocado toast or like whatever, who cares? Um, That's why I hate budgets so much because they make rules for the sake of rules. And um, I think that that's just another avenue that we shame ourselves about money. So if you just know that you're putting enough away, I think that that can really give you back control, makes you feel like you're doing something. And in the back of your mind, it restores hope and faith that like, even if I buy this, you know, coat, my long-term goal of, you know, X is not at risk here. And so I can do this and I can feel good about it instead of I can do this and beat myself up about it. Now, when have you felt guilt or anxiety about finances? I mean, do, oh, you, still, do you still feel that way sometimes? Yeah, I'm a human being. Of course, I'm human. And it's a, it's a cycle, right? So it's like, I think my skill set is just noticing when it's happening and immediately knowing what to do to, to get it back in line versus a spiral, right? So I've stopped spiraling because I'm like a, I'm a seasoned vet now at it. But like, in my life. And I talked about this in living debt free, actually. Um, when I quit my worst, more my, my best example of me being on like a full blown spending spree spiraling out of control (laughs) is when I quit my job, like my Bay street job to start my own business. I originally had this idea called barter babes project where I, so when I quit, I saved up enough for like rent for the year and, and my cell phone. And then I was like, well, Everyone says that, you know, young people, and I was, I was actually young women at the time, you know, they won't be able to afford to pay me. But so what I would do instead is I'll give them unbiased financial planning advice for a barter instead of like a bartered good or service instead of an actual like cash transaction. So my grandiose idea was that I was just going to like pay for rent and cell phone with the money I'd save for my Bay Street job and then barter for everything else from like lasagna to like a bike or whatever. And I did that. But what happened was like, it was not enough. I could not like live a sustainably, a a sustainable way that way. And I had, I exhausted my savings like within three months or something, maybe four, I ended up taking on credit card debt and I had debt as a student. Like I had $30,000 of the student debt before that I had had debt before, but I'd never had like credit card debt, which is different because it comes with like so much shame. And so I remember just, it got to a certain point where it was like, well, I'm already, oh, you know, 2000 bucks. So like, what's another 200 bucks? Cause it's like, it felt so insurmountable that it didn't even matter what I did anymore. And that was like a real point, a turning point of like, you know, screw it. Just like one of those, like, whatever, I can't do anything about it. It is what it is. Like that apathy that set in. And as a result, I ended up secretly, I also kept it from my partner because I was so <laughs> guilty and shameful that like an ex Bay street <laughs> person who was a financial planner, is like secretly sliding into debt so that they could do this like project that was just so emotionally fulfilling and financially devastating to my life. So by the end of it, it was like, you know, $13,000 worth of credit card debt I'd racked up 
And I finally had to like come clean and end up having to cash out investments that I had had in my RSP from this Bay Street position I had before. It's just, oh, it's such a mess. So that was like the turning point for me as being like, I don't ever want to feel like that again. (laughs) And also living it also gave me this insight into like how easy it is to slip into a spending cycle where it just if it feels good, do it. And I'll like, that's 20, you know, that's at the time I've been like, that's 2012 Shannon's problems. <laughs> and like, I don't care right now because I need this right in this moment. And I still see those, those trends happening a lot with my clients. And I still have moments like that, like the pandemic, I definitely overspent on my kids trying to create a world in our walls, within our walls during that first lockdown. Like there was no price tag, you know, within reason that matter. It was endless activity books done. Uh, okay. You want a trampoline? Like one of those mini trampolines, uh, not one of the big ones, but like done. Oh, you want this toy done. You want a Nerf gun debt? Like I just spent emotionally without any sort of planning because I was so emotionally charged about it. And then, you know, then we had a good laugh and got our stuff back in line, but it still happens to me all the time. I can relate to that. I think that first week when we went into lockdown and on that 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 middle of March week, I think I yeah. went, I did a whole ton of online shopping. I bought shoes, which then of course I was in the house for weeks and weeks and weeks and had no reason to wear shoes. Um, <laughs> it was like <laughs> denial buying or something. I remember that feeling. Yeah. Um, how do you think the pandemic has impacted our relationship with money? In so many ways. One in the beginning, especially scarcity mindset, like reared its ugly head for everybody, including just like what I'm talking about. Like, Oh my God, there's a run on activity books. I have to get them. I'm going to buy five, like that kind of thing. Right. Like it's like a panic. Like remember the rule, the runs on toilet paper, like, like there's a, there's a panic and a scarcity that set in, in the beginning. We're not, I don't think we're there now so much, but like in the beginning, I saw a lot of overspending myself included, um, around scarcity, around panic, around, you know, trying to, um, trying to comfort everybody's comforting themselves in some various ways, like a lot of Pelotons, (laughs) a lot of expensive coffee machines. And so I think that we all learned a lesson or a relationship with money changed because I think that with people who lost income there, I have a lot of people who were laid off from hundreds of like from six figure salaries. And then they went on to serve with like $2,000 a month and they never saw it coming. So I think we've had a good run in the stock market since 2008. Like things have been pretty steady economically speaking in Canada. And I think that it made everybody, even if you didn't have your income disrupted, be like, nothing is totally certain. And this, it really shook people up and there's uncertainty now. So we're constantly having to make decisions and plans with our money with a moving target and a ton of uncertainty. And so that impacts our relationship with money because there's two um, like go-to reactions to deal with uncertainty. One is to like hoard and one is to just like screw it and spend. And it's somewhere in the middle is the right answer. And so it takes a lot of brain power to get to that like really rational, logical place, because sometimes hoarding money isn't actually the most logical thing. It can actually lead you to 
being even more unhappy because you feel like you're, you're not even living or there's like nothing, like it's just an endless grind. So I, I think to make sure that we're being really rational about our financial decisions is, is really hard work. And when you're dealing with high stakes emotionally and financially and with uncertainty, financial, every financial decision becomes scary again, for completely new reasons than maybe before, which was about inadequacy. So I think it added an extra layer for everybody. Everybody don't take anything for granted and you don't necessarily know what's coming around the corner. The pl- plan for an emergency. Oh my God. I've been touting emergency funds for decade, like over a decade. And they are so unsexy and nobody likes them. And I have to like force clients to do it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. People are like very much about paying down debt. And then as soon as they're debt-free, they're like, I want to invest. And keeping your money... <laughs> in like liquid 1% savings account feels like super lame. And I get it. And now for the first time since like 2008, people are like, I want to build an emergency account. And I'm like, yes. So that for me was like an actual, like very positive thing that came out of it. People really understand. And I don't think I have to do the same convincing that I had to do before to have like a reserve of money that is just like there if you need it. You know, when it comes to money, we all seem to be living in a, a sort of a cycle of silence we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it with our friends. We don't talk about it with our family. Why are we all so afraid to talk about money with each other? I think we're afraid to talk about the the nitty gritty details. So like I said earlier, I think we're all okay to talk lightly about it. So if someone is like going through a divorce, they might say something like, I don't know if I can afford to keep the house. So that's talking about money. But what's not happening is like, I don't know if my income is enough to float the buyout of this like, you know, $800,000 mortgage I'm going to be stuck with on one income. Like how am I going to, like, it's like very specific. That's what I don't think we talk about. And then I also don't think we talk about how we're accomplishing things that look awesome. Right. So if you've just renovated your home, you know, we might say like, Oh yeah, it was expensive, but I don't know that we're saying I refinanced my house. I planned on an $85,000 HELOC. It spiraled out of control to 140 and I'm making the minimum payments and I can only roll that into my mortgage the next time I refinance because I'm never going to pay that off in the short run and hopefully it all works out in the long run. That, that's the conversation I'm, ha- I'm having. But that's not like over coffee with your friends. I think there's two reasons. The biggest one is that we're scared of what other people are going to think. And so money is this weird thing where somehow we're all supposed to be good at it. And it just takes like a little bit of willpower. And so if you aren't good, if you're not making a good financial decision, then somehow you're stupid or you have no willpower. But like, it's a whole skill set that they don't teach in school most of the time. So I feel it's, it's so unfair that it gets this like, because we touch it every day, it feels like we should all know what's up with it. But like, I use my shower every day. I'm not a plumber. Should I know intricately how my plumbing works because I shower every day? No. So I'm using this thing. I use my car every day. I don't know how to fix it. So like, why do we think that we should know the intricacies of financial planning just because we use money every day? It boggles my mind, but we do. And so money has this like way of, we're afraid that people will think that we're not making good decisions. So if, if you renovate your house, for example, and you came in under budget and it was great. You might have some, some people say, yeah, that's such a good investment. You're going to get that back. And then you're going to feel good about yourself, right? But if you have someone being like, oh my God, like, why did, holy, you like really went for it. Jeez. Like, I hope you make that back one day. Like now you're second guessing everything about yourself. And now that person 
every time you talk about the reno, you're going to be feel guilty and shameful about it. So it's better that they don't know the actual details because then they can't really have a true opinion about what it is that you're doing with your money. The other thing that really bugs me too is like um, everybody has an opinion. So one of the other things I say in the book is like, also stop giving your opinion about other people's money. So if someone tells you what they're spending money on, give them credit. Say, maybe you know more than what's going on behind the scenes. So like, you don't think that that was a good spend, but you have no idea if this person has like oodles of money in savings. You, maybe you're assuming that they're struggling. And I also find sometimes that because we don't talk about money, we assume people are struggling, or we also sometimes assume that they're really successful and they're not. And so I, I think we're scared to tell people the real thing because we don't want to be judged. That ultimately we are afraid that they're going to think that we're done with money. And that is like an insult that cuts to the core because if you are bad with money, then you might actually start believing that you're bad with money, like negative self-talk. And once you start believing that you're bad with money, then you, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because you're, you fundamentally do not trust your ability to attain your goals. And so I, I really think that talking about money, and I mean, I don't, you don't have to say the exact specifics. It's a lot, but like, I think ranges are helpful for people and being really honest. So like if you bought a house and you had a family handout, you don't need to show them the gift letter. But what you could say is instead of just being like, yeah, we're really excited. You could be like, my parents helped me a lot. It was a six figure. It was six figures. That is a shocking thing to say, but do you know how many of your renting friends will be so grateful that you did that? Because then they're not going to stand up all night being like, why am I so bad with money? Because they're gonna be like, oh, that's how you did it. That makes so much sense. So like, like just like taking the sting and the inadequacy out of all of it and doesn't make you any less of a person if you got some help somewhere, who cares? And so things like that. And then also talking about wages and can really help to normalize things as well between friend groups and like knowing where, where people are at again in ranges. You don't have to give the specifics, but like having a range, range conversation can help elevate everybody in the group. And then also give empathy because if everyone thinks that you make certain amount of money, but you don't, and you're trying and the group of friends is spending too much or doing something, then they're just assuming that everything's good. And if you don't speak up, then you're going to end up in a situation where you're, you're either overspending or you're feeling like you miss out. And neither of those are financially satisfying. I've found it whenever I've been with friends and they've talked to me about money, whether it's a worry about something or they don't want to spend money on something because right now they, they just don't have the, the cash to do it. I, 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 I don't know. I just feel hugely relieved. And yes. I think to myself, why don't, why are we not talking about this more? Cause it always feels like a big relief when you're with people that you feel safe with and that you're close with. Yeah. I'm not saying post it on social. I'm just saying the people that matter to you should know approximately what's going on in your life. And by proxy, they should tell you it should be a give and take. And the reason you probably feel relief is that it's nice to know that we're not the only ones feeling tight sometimes or frustrated financially sometimes because there's this also this belief that if you feel frustrated financially, that somehow you're complaining and that you're not appreciating your life. And that's also not fair because I think it's normal for everybody to feel financially frustrated every now and then, you know, except for Jeff Bezos. But like, I feel like most people, average person is even if they have a good income, like life is expensive and there's going to be moments of utter frustration with your finances. And that doesn't mean that you don't appreciate your life. That doesn't mean that you haven't, that you are just like you're insatiable or greedy. It just means like that, one of the goals that you're that are important to you is at stake 
and you don't see a way through it. That's what that means. And so you either need to change the goal or change what's happening every on the day-to-day finances to like get things back in line. And that's a frustrating thing to do because it means you're compromising. And as human beings, we don't love to compromise. And the other thing, money is like a, it's one of the, it's a long game thing. And it's really hard. Like the short game is not satisfying, right? So like you think about paying down debt, a five-year plan, <laughs> trotting away at like $400 a month or $300 a month. It feels like, oh my God, that's, that's an infinity time. It's forever, right? Like it's such a practice in keeping the faith in the long game. And that is really hard in times of panic and uncertainty. Now you have a, a new book coming out in 2022, No Regret Decisions, How to Make Difficult Decisions in Difficult Times. Do I have that right? You do. Yeah, that sounds like a, a perfect, uh, perfect topic for right now. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the book? Yeah, I originally, um, I have a lot of clients who go through divorce and critical illness and infertility journeys and becoming caregivers, all of these like massive, massive life altering times of your life. And the, the reason I'm pulled in is the money part, right? And so a lot of things cost money. So if you're, if you, can you afford, if you're becoming a caregiver, what are the, what's the money piece of that? If you're going through a divorce, what's the money piece of that? If you're going through a fertility journey, what's the money piece of that? And so fleshing out those facts and scenarios is like part of my daily life. So again, when you're talking to people who are in uh, so many different socioeconomic backgrounds and dealing with totally different things, like one person is divorcing, the other person is becoming a caregiver. But the commonality between all of those people is that the emotional stakes are high. So there's a lot riding on this. The future is completely uncertain. So like, so you have to make financial decisions at your worst possible time. So accessing that, so you might be heartbroken. You might be devastated. You might be hormonal. You might be grieving. And yet you are forced to put one foot in front of the other and make, try to make logical choices when the future is completely uncertain and the stakes are high. What a gong show, like, oh my God, right? And so, so part of my job, I'm also a life coach too, right? So part of my job is to find the balance between all of it and walk through a process that we can actually look at whatever decision that one has to make at this tough point in their life. It's not about how it all plays out because it's uncertain. It's completely uncertain. We don't know, you know, if, if a client of mine is on a fertility journey, we don't know how that's going to end. If a client of mine is trying to become a caregiver or someone with Alzheimer's, we don't know when that's going to, we don't know how and when things are going to change. We, we don't know. And so all you can do is, is make a decision that you can be proud of at the end, no matter how it plays out. And so my job is to make sure we've flushed everything out so that the emotional and financial stakes feel secure and that no matter what happens when the dust settles and you see, you see how it all plays out in your next normal life, right? You can look back and say, I did, I still am proud of that decision, even if things didn't work out the way that you thought that they would. And that is what the book's about. It's about how to, be, how to make no regret decisions because that's ultimately how you can move forward in your life and make peace with however things shake down. You know, these are these are difficult and uncertain times for pretty much everyone right now because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. What is making you feel hopeful? It's a great question. 
what is making me feel hopeful? Oh, I am hopeful. What makes me feel hopeful is that I'm confident in my ability, like to the point that I was just saying, I'm confident in my own ability to make decisions that I will be proud of later on, however things like play out with the pandemic. So all of the decisions that, you know, I've had to make personally are like, you know, at one point I thought I was going to like sell my house and move to the suburbs and I didn't. And like, there's all these other things that like, do I even send my kid to, to school? Do I send them to, to daycare? Do we, there's all these like various different things. Like every decision became like a big one, but what I'm really confident in is like, I know I trust myself. I trust my intuition. I trust myself. I trust my brain. You know, if I make a decision and it doesn't play out long-term the way that I had hoped, I won't beat myself up forever. And so that actually gives me hope that like, I trust myself, which is huge. And so that's, that's a humbling thing. The pandemic has been as well to surrender to uncertainty. Right. And we can't control so much. And like that, that has been a a really good lesson. So if you, if I can find ways to just put the trust and the hope in how in myself and the decisions that I make, then it doesn't matter what's kind of going on. It it absolves me of of guilt about guessing wrong because it's no matter what happens, I'm still going to be proud of myself for how I navigated it. And, and that has, that has made me really, really hopeful that on the other side of this, whenever that might come, I can look back and say, I wouldn't do it any other way. And what about for your clients? What's making me hopeful for them is actually just recently. So I, in the beginning, we ended up doing a lot of micro timelines. So planning for the next, you know, three weeks instead of, you know, three years, because who knows, right? And so I've really felt the shift in the last like five months from crisis planning and short-term planning, which are like survival plans, even for people who didn't lose their income. But like, there's a fear of like, I just need to get through the next bit and then see what happens. Right. So we're like, cool. We don't know what's happening six years from now. So let's plan for the next six months. So a lot of that in the short run and and in the last five months, I've really felt the conversation with clients shift from right now to, okay, let's get back. Let's, let's think about the future again. Let's start to think, talk about five years from now. Let's start to talk about three years from now and start to make plans that, that feel manageable and hopeful. And so that has been a real shift in vibe, if you will. But when you have like so many meetings a week, vibe is really, you pick up on vibes real easy. <laughs> and so that's been like this like communal vibe change that's happened in the last five months that's giving me hope for people that they're also feeling like they're coming out of panic mode and into the more like long haul place where you can access less black and white decisions and and more options. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Shannon. I, I oh my gosh, it was my pleasure. I feel a lot less worried about money. <laughs> I hope so. For more about this episode, go to lifespeak.com slash podcast. A production of the Sound Off Media Company.